Amen. If you would join me in 1 Timothy 2, that'll be our passage of Scripture uh, this morning. Um, Pastor Eric shared with us about evangelism and um, his message last week and my message this morning uh, are to prepare our hearts and prepare our church for something that is 40 days away. Um, right now, I know that you have plans for holidays and you're thinking about Christmas uh, in the end of the year. Well, we want to plant some seeds now that will prepare us for the beginning of next year. Because in January of 2023, uh, all of our community groups are going to kind of pivot to being Alpha groups. And Alpha is this course that we have used. It's been a very effective evangelism tool, uh, helping people understand who Jesus is, uh, what the purpose of life is. It asks, asks the big questions. And so preparing for that between now and then and the sermon series that I'll be preaching alongside of it, we want our church to have this culture of evangelism. So Pastor Eric talked about how the, there's three main ingredients in that, uh, that we need to be motivated. And that motivation comes from the grace of God pouring into our lives. We need to be equipped. We need to know what we would share with someone if we were given the opportunity. And we need to be available. And today I want to talk to you about the prayer that the, the foundation that undergirds all of that and it's prayer. And I want to call us to a season of 40 days of prayer between now and the new year, praying that God is going to use you to invite your one or to share the gospel with your one so that they might know the reason for this season that we're about uh, to go through. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to see this passage of Scripture that's often thought of uh, in a very specific context. I want us to look at it more broadly. Most of the time, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, come up around this time of year because it's election season. We've just had the midterms. We've got some new elected officials. We've got a different majority in the House of Representatives by a razor's margin. Um, we've also had some announcements this week about the next election. I mean, we just had an election, and now it's time to announce for the next election because it is always election season in America. Someone is always running for something, right? And so because it's always election season, because that dominates our news cycles, this passage of Scripture gets brought up because this passage of Scripture talks about praying for kings and praying for those in authority. And it's good. It's good that we think about this and we are reminded to pray for those in authority and pray for our elected leaders. Any position of leadership is difficult and requires God's grace and His insight and His guidance. And we should absolutely pray for our elected officials. But I want us to look past that initial application. I want us to see the big idea that this passage is about. Paul is driving home this idea to Timothy. He writes this letter to Timothy, who's a pastor of a church in Ephesus. It's a young pastor that he's left behind there in Ephesus as he has continued to go on and to minister elsewhere. Timothy is to raise up this people. He's to lead them. He's to guide them. He's to help them become solidified in their faith. And he's telling Timothy these things on how he should lead his church. And so imagine that Paul is writing to Timothy, but he's also writing to your pastor. He's writing to Pastor Daniel, he's writing to Pastor Eric, and he's telling us how our church should operate, not just how Timothy should lead Ephesus, the church that he's at, to operate. 
So let's read that passage together. We'll start in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 1. Therefore I exert, exhort, first of all, that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So here, the very first word of this chapter, therefore, which communicates to us that this verse is building upon something that already came. He's connecting this to a concept that he's already shared in chapter 1. And if we look back at chapter 1, we see really four sections. Starts off with the main greeting that Paul gives every time. He starts off by greeting the person that he's writing to, right? Which is, is polite and customary, right? Uh, some of us, we struggle with that. Like we see someone, we just immediately jump into like, hey, I need you to tell you this, right? Um, but Paul would greet them. And he would kind of solidify this relationship they had. Gives that customary greeting. And then he challenges Timothy to preach no other doctrine than that of the gospel. And, and Paul starts there because some in the church in Ephesus had moved on from the gospel. They had treated the gospel like this thing that you learn and graduate from and then you start finding the real good stuff. They treated the gospel like this thing that you learn, and then you can move on to the secret knowledge or the mysteries of the faith. And whenever that happens, whenever we move on from the gospel, what we move on to is error. It leads us down dangerous paths. And so he tells Timothy, never move on from the gospel. Always stay on the gospel. It's what he says in verses 6 and 7. From which some, having strayed, this is in chapter 1, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Have you ever heard someone talk and they don't know what they're talking about? That's what Paul just said. They've moved on from the gospel and they really want to be up in front of everybody talking, but they don't even know what they're talking about. This is a problem. So he, he, he greets Timothy, he tells Timothy, don't move on from the gospel. And then Paul gives a little testimony. And it's, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. Look at verses 12 and 13. I think Jesus Christ our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, put me, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in my unbelief. And the grace of the Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This Tuesday, when we have that Thanksgiving service, that testimony service, it's beautiful every time because people, just like you, people who are sitting in these pews with you are going to share what God's done in their life. And I do my best, and Pastor Eric does his best to pr pr preach the gospel to you uh, on a regular basis here to give you messages. We, we work to try to make it clear and compelling every Sunday. But sometimes the thing that is, is just the most compelling is not hearing it from us, but hearing it at work in the life of somebody who sits next to you on Sunday. And Paul is not just preaching to Timothy the gospel that is this academic thing. He's preaching to Timothy the gospel that he's experienced in his own life. 
He says, Timothy, let's not move on from the gospel. It's the gospel that changed my life. It's the gospel that changed me. It's the gospel that, that, that took me from being the horrible man that I was and made me different and new. And by the way, friend, if you're here and you're a guest with us, anything good you see here is Jesus. Anything bad is us. The good is the work of God in us, and the rest is, is us that still needs that work. And so Paul says, just like he did in my life, and it's, it's moving here because he says, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent man. And it's, it's fitting because just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, he's listed all of these things that people are, that people need to be saved from. And Paul isn't just preaching against all of those people, he's saying, I'm one of them too. I'm one of those people too. He would say in this passage that God came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul is not preaching a gospel that other people need. He's preaching a gospel that he needed. And here at our church, we want other people to know a gospel not because they need it, but because we knew how powerful it was in our lives. We needed it. We needed it. One of the values of our church is that we welcome everyone because we know Jesus can change anyone. Just like he changed us. So the gospel had changed Paul's life. Paul loves the gospel because it saves other people just like it saved him. He was the blasphemer. He says, and the, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. He goes on to say in verse 15 of chapter 1, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What happens here is Paul is writing a letter to Timothy and he gets carried away in the gospel. He gets so moved that he has to write a little song. Here in the middle of this letter, like it, it is something that is still so new and powerful to Paul that he can't get through this paragraph without going on a little tangent about how good God is. Now let me challenge you this Thanksgiving week, because I'm afraid that many times our lives are different and that we can hardly get through a conversation without bringing up something that we're upset about or that we're complaining about, or thing that did not go our way. I know this is true in my life. There's some things that frustrate me, and I will bring them up on the regular when they're frustrating me. Like, everybody's got to hear this story. Have I told you about the horrible thing yet? Right? Paul is so moved by the gospel, he can't get through this without bringing it up again. So, Chapter 2, verse 1, what is the therefore, therefore, all that. By the way, I knew I was in trouble when I had three pages and we hadn't got past the first word of this text in chapter 2. What he's about to call Timothy and the Ephesians and us to is based upon and rooted in the gospel that he has refreshed and reproclaimed in chapter 1. So, the reason for this passage chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 
It's about the gospel, and it's about prayer for all men. I don't think it's so much about government. I don't think it's so much about elected officials. The reason for this passage is not about the establishing of governments to pass certain laws. The purpose of this passage is based upon and rooted in the gospel work that Paul and Timothy are engaged in, leading people in the gospel work. So let's look back at chapter 2. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life and all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now, if Paul had just stopped there and then changed the subject to talk about something else, you might be able to convince me that this is just a little passage just about praying for people in government. Okay? It would be hard based on chapter 1, but it's impossible based on what happens after this in the next verses. Because verse 4 says, Who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I just recently read something from Andrew DeMick, and I, I'm probably mispronouncing his, his last name. Um, when I quote people, uh, there's no one I've ever quoted that I agree with wholeheartedly except for Jesus. All right, maybe Paul. Um, but every so often I just feel this need to say like, when I quote someone, it doesn't mean that I agree with everything they've ever said. All right, I agree with what they said here. Uh, and I'm going to quote something that, that, that he wrote recently that I thought was, was very good. And, I, and it's long, so I'm, I'm not going to quote it in, in its entirety. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But, but he recently said this. If you are convinced that the end of the world is upon us, that the great apostasy is coming, that your country is about to collapse, and that your political system is on the verge of takeover by a hostile force. If you believe those things, if you believe that a vast conspiracy is at work in the world, then you can pretty easily justify a lot of bad behavior by yourself and by those that you like, who are on the same side as you. But if we look at what the saints of the church in the past have done in moments when those things were actually happening and did happen, we don't see them engaging in bad behavior. What we see, even among the most outlandish of them, is not them being harmful and cruel to others. It's not them name-calling. Most notably, they accepted with love and patience the suffering that came to them because of their stance for holy living. If all of the conspiracies are real. If the government truly has become corrupt and totalitarian or fascist, if the world is really ending, what is it that God is asking us to do? What did he expect 
them to do. He's not looking for rabble-rousers. He's not looking for one who destroys relationships. He's not looking for pundits. He's not looking for revolutionaries. He's not looking for complainers. He's looking for faithfulness. He's looking for hope in the midst of hardship. He's looking for voices that see the large-scale suffering in this world as an opportunity and a means toward repentance. He's looking for beauty amidst the destruction. He's looking for righteous men and women. Not all of us are called to be prophets, but all of us are called to be faithful. All of us are called to be hopeful. In other words, even if the world is doomed, our mission remains exactly the same. Even if the world is doomed, our mission remains exactly the same. There is no warrant for bad behavior. Because the ends do not justify the means. An evil time does not justify evil words and evil deeds. Extreme circumstances often call for extreme measures, but the only truly justified extremity for Christians is an increase in our repentance and longing for revival. We do not battle monstrosities by becoming monsters. Christ told us that in this world we would have trouble. And the response to that troubled he called us to was not to be angry, was not to divide, was not to tear down. It was to be of good cheer. Why? Because he has overcome the world. When the saints talk about the end of the world, they talk about the hope of the life to come. That's why they build in this world. It is easy to be one who complains and tears down. It's easy to be a critic, but let's be rebuilders. In other words, what he's saying here is our response to the end of the world, which seems to be happening more often these days, is that we should continue to do what we are doing, what we are to be about, what God has called us to do. The extremity of our times does not call us to do something different, but rather to go deeper in what it is that God has called us to be about. When Paul writes this letter to Timothy, it's because they're facing some challenges at their church. And what Paul tells Timothy, before he gives him instruction on how he should handle these issues and these problems in his church, is he says, Timothy, stay with the gospel. And sometimes when we face challenges and adversities, sometimes when our week or our year or our decade is so different from anything that we've ever experienced, we think, well, we need new tools, new methods, new efforts. But really what we need is we need what we've always needed. Perhaps we need to return to them. What we desperately want to happen here at Faith Church is for us to be a church that is serious about God's word and has a culture of evangelism. That we see our world changed, not through these other means and these extreme actions, but rather by going deep into what it is that God has called us to. So Paul tells Timothy, stay on the gospel and be one who prays for all people, that they should come to repentance. 
Now, Paul's writing to Timothy, and if you read later on in chapter 2, you'll see that there is some issues that are happening in Timothy's church that have to deal with the roles around men and women and their, their differences. Does that sound familiar at all, right? This is something we continue to struggle with 2,000 years later. And it seems that the situation in Ephesus is probably a little bit different from the other places that Paul has ministered. In Ephesus, there were these pagan temples, and uh, there were these places where it was pretty common for there to be uh, pagan uh, temple prostitutes and priestesses. And, and Paul wants the church that celebrates Christ to look dramatically different from those. And so he has some instructions for them on how they should conduct themselves. Paul would address these things. I somewhat wonder if he's addressing this because another thing that's happening in the church in Ephesus is like every other church that has ever been, they, they get together. And what do you talk about? You talk about the weather. You talk about gas, gas prices, right? Or maybe back then it was chariot prices or something. And you talk about how horrible your politicians are. Maybe there's some new mayor of Ephesus that they don't like or that doesn't like the Christians, right? And they're talking about him. And maybe Timothy is tempted just to say, let's not even bring that guy's name up. Paul says, yeah, bring his name up. Bring his name up in prayer. And be praying for everyone. Because God desires and wills that all would come to know him. All people. If we're leading God's people and meeting in God's house, we should want to do it in a way that is pleasing to God. And Timothy is being given instructions here on how they should go about that. Um, how many of you have ever played like a board game with someone or a card game with someone and you find out they have a completely different set of rules for that game, right? Like you play Uno and they only draw one or maybe you have to draw until you can play a card right? Uh, you play Monopoly with some people and, you know, you get $400 if you land on Go or, you know, you, you, you get all of the money from the community chest if you land in free parking. Some people don't play that. Some people do, right? And whoever's house you're in, you play by their rules because it's their house, right? Now, when you come to board game night here at the church, it's like all bets are off because it's, it's not your house, right? But when you're in that house, you live by their rules. And maybe they value things that you don't value, right? We've probably all been to someone's house where they don't, they don't wear shoes in the house. I, I like wearing shoes in the house. I've always worn shoes in the house. I don't like for my feet to be cold when I'm walking in the house. Our floors get cold. I always wear shoes. And we don't have carpet, so it's not a problem. But there are people that they have nice carpet, and they don't want it to get messed up. They don't want you walking around outside and carrying that in. And when I go to their house, I don't go, I don't care what you think. I'm wearing my shoes, right? I take my shoes off and pile them up in the huge mound of shoes that they keep by the door, right? That's something that they value. It's their house, their house rules, right? When we gather with God's people, not just in this building, but when we gather with his people wherever, we're, we're gathering together God's house, his people. And our desire should be to do what is pleasing to him, what he would have us to do. Paul is telling Timothy some things that they should be doing that is pleasing to the Lord, that he would have them to do. And he tells Timothy, I want you to be praying for all people, 
I want you to be praying for all people, including the politicians, even those politicians. Because it's God's heart and desire that all would come to know Him. That's what He wants. That's what He values. And so if you're praying for all people, and this is what He values, when you pray these prayers, it is good and acceptable, Paul says. These are good and acceptable prayers. This is conduct that the Lord loves. Because it's after His heart. It's what he wants. Do you realize when we pray for other people to come to know him, we're praying the very things that God wants, things that he wants so much that he was willing to give his son as a sacrifice to accomplish? Listen, I know that you have friends and family that you long to see them come to know Jesus. You know who wants that more? God wants that more than you. He wants that desperately. And so when we are praying these prayers, we're praying good and acceptable prayers before the Lord. We're praying prayers that God wants to answer. The Puritans used to word it this way. It's praying prayers that God would blush to not answer. He wants to answer these prayers. Now, when I come to your house, I, I play by your rules I take my shoes off if you want me to take my shoes off because it's your house. But that's a little bit different because it's your house and I'm only going to be there for a little bit and I can go back home and I can wear my shoes if I want to. But what if my wife and I, we have a different perspective on this and suddenly she wants me to take my shoes off when I come in the house. This will be an ongoing problem, right? Something's going to need to, to change, right? Or there's going to be this constant bickering about whether I really need to take my shoes off. Probably what needs to happen is I need to become convinced of her point of view. Men, just a tip. Just become convinced of her point of view. Your life is better. Right? But when I begin to want the same thing that she wants, if I were to become convinced that, yeah, you know, it's not a good idea to wear shoes in the house. If I want that, Instead of it becoming this thing that she wants, and I'm just doing it because she wants it, it's this thing that we want. And it doesn't become this thing that I have to do. It's this thing that I want to do. The motivation for our prayer shouldn't just be that God wants these people to know Christ, but we want them to know Christ. What we see in the life of Paul here, what we see is that God has done such a powerful work in him, he wants it for other people. Pastor Eric illustrated this well last week when he talked about that basketball. The basketball is driven down and it bounces back and the love and power and grace of God pouring into our lives. We want it for other people. And now this is not just something that we're praying because God tells us we should pray it, but rather it's something that we're praying that is good and acceptable in His sight, but it's also something that we desperately want. We desire. This is what we should want. This motivation of God's should be ours as well. Our actions will follow if our motivations align with His. Based on the foundation of the gospel that Paul laid, he calls us to pray for all people, even the politicians. But the motivation he lays out here, is that our motivation? Do we desire that all would come to know Christ? Do we want that? 
do we want that? And I know that I bring this up, and I'm sure that each one of us could think of people that are close to us, that we care about, that we want them to know Jesus. But what about the stranger? What about the person on the other side of the world that doesn't even have the Bible translated into their language? Is there a driving desire in our hearts that they would know Jesus too? Faith Church, let me remind you that this church exists because people who do not live here and are not from here and do not know any of us wanted the gospel to be proclaimed in southern Indiana and they gave and they prayed in support of this church to be planted where there was no church. There were people who had the same heart that God has. That people in this area could come to know Jesus. When we want what He wants, our prayers will be good and acceptable. Now Paul doesn't tell us exactly what to pray. But he does tell us how to pray. He says in verse 1, Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And listen, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy. He's not trying to get to 300 words on an essay for English class. Okay? If you've ever taken an English class, you've got to write a 300-word essay. You know that you write... Prayer, supplication, giving of thanks, right? Like we're just going to repeat all of these words, right? For men and women and children and babies and grandmas and uncles and aunts, right? We're just trying to put words in. Paul's not just saying four different words for prayer because he's trying to meet a word count. There's a reason for these words. He's writing a letter to Timothy. He's not firing off a text. He's writing a letter that would be carried to Timothy. And he says, supplications prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks. So what do these words mean? They're all prayers. What do they mean? Well, supplication is to ask from a place of need. It's to beg. It's a place where you're willing to admit your need. When you see someone on the side of the road with a sign that says, in need, please help, they're a supplicant. They're begging They're willing to communicate to everyone that they're in want, that they don't have what they need, and they're asking for others to give it to them. Now, some people are so unconcerned with appearing weak that they will pretend to be weak just to get something from you. But most of us, we pretend the other way. We pretend to be stronger than we really are. We pretend to have it more together than we really do. We don't want people to see us as weak. We're insecure. We're proud. We don't want people to know that we're in this position of powerlessness. We don't like being powerless, and we don't want other people to know that we're powerless. But when we're supplicants before God, we are begging and recognizing that we are powerless. We're coming to Him and asking and recognizing that only He can provide what it is that we need, that we cannot provide it ourselves. And when we are praying for the lost, there should never be a time that we are more clear on the fact that we are supplicants because we can't save anyone. It is only God who can do that work in their lives. It is only He who can bring that to pass. So we are coming to God humbly. And this will come naturally to us when we recognize what Paul has reminded us of in this passage, that we were lost in our sins. And the only reason that we are different is not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. 
And if he can do this in us, he can do the same in others. And what's beautiful about this is that when we beg God to save others, we're begging someone that we know to be capable and we know to be willing to help because he did it in our lives. Supplications and prayers. This word literally means addressing God. It's the common and usual word, but it's, it's in reference to something that's anything but common and usual. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were in Hebrews chapter 10, and that passage tells us that we are able to boldly approach the throne of grace, which is amazing. We're able to come before God boldly because of what Christ has done for us, because he has washed us in his blood, that because of the sacrifice that he made for us, we are forgiven of our sins, and we're able to come before God boldly. You know, sometimes... People want me, the pastor, to pray for them because they think I've got this special connection to God. That in my office, I got a red phone and when I pick it up, God answers because I'm the pastor. I don't have any type of special connection to God because I'm the pastor. But I do have, I do have the ability to approach God because I'm forgiven of my sins. And every Christian has that access. Now listen, I'm not telling you that your unsaved friends and family, that God doesn't hear them because God knows all and he sees all. But I am telling you that you, because you have put your faith in Christ and been forgiven of your sins, you're able to boldly and confidently come to the throne of grace. Whereas they are not. We're able to address God for them. And because of this reality, we're given the opportunity to serve in that next capacity. Supplications, prayers, and intercessions. To intercede for someone means to intervene between two parties with a view to reconcile differences. It's when your two friends are arguing and you try to mend the fence between them. It's when you try to bring them together. It's exactly what Christ did for us when he came to earth and took our hands and the hand of God and brought them together on the cross. And when, when we intercede for other people, we're taking one hand in Christ and the other reaching out to others. We are trying to be like Jesus was for us for that other person. Interceding is begging God on their behalf. It's trying to bridge that gap between God and them. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Thanksgiving. Got to be honest, this one is tough. Because it's not easy to be thankful for everyone. Is it? Right? There are people that you could be like... Yeah, they need Jesus. Jesus, you need to do a work in their life, right? It'd be a little bit harder to, God, thank you for this person. Thank you for putting them in my life, right? Some of you are going to Thanksgiving dinner with people this week that it would be hard for you to pray that prayer about. Some of you are going to sit across the table from people that have been harmful to you. They've made life difficult for you. And it would be difficult to thank God for them because of the things that they have done to you. 
it's not easy to be thankful for every leader or politician. It's not easy to be thankful for every neighbor or customer or family member. Some people are simply difficult and draining. But Faith Church, we believe that every life is precious because every life is a miracle. Just this morning, in, in the, the small hours of this morning, a new life was welcomed into our community, and it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Just this morning, a, a life connected to our church passed from this life to the next. And God says that that is precious in his sight. We believe that every life is precious. And, and early this morning when, when baby Pope was born, that was a miracle. And every baby that was born in that hospital was a miracle. And every neighbor you have, there was a day that they were born and it was a miracle. And even the most annoying and difficult and draining people in your life, it is a miracle that they're here. That God has given them the opportunity to be alive, that they are made in His image, that they have an everlasting soul that will spend eternity somewhere. Every one of those people is a miracle. Recently, I heard of a business that opened to the public, and the owner said, you know, now that we're open to the public, I'm not sure if I like the public. And I was like, I get it. Because people are, are difficult. You know why people are difficult? Because they're broken. God, God did not create the world and create the beautiful Garden of Eden and say, you know what else this place needs? It needs some difficult people. It needs some grumpy, impatient, hard-to-be-around people. That's what the Garden needs. And that's not what he created. He created man and woman in his image. And they loved one another and they loved God and it was beautiful. But then something happened. Then sin entered into the world. And it brought heartache and separation and impatience and crabbiness. You ever drive past a, an old beat-up car on the side of the road and you can think one or two things. Why don't, why don't they get rid of that thing? Or you could think, man, if they fix that up, that could be, that could really be something. Every person in your life is made in the image of God and broken by the fall of sin on this world. It's a miracle that they're here. It's a miracle that they were born. Just this past week, we reached 8 billion people on planet Earth. That's a lot of people. I can't wrap my, wrap my mind around how many people that is. Every one of them, a miracle. Every one of them, broken every one of them in need of the Savior. 
God has called us to reach the world, but he hasn't called us to reach all the 8 billion. He's called us to start where we're at. And there are people in your family and in your workplace and in your neighborhood. And even that could be overwhelming to think about. So in this season, in this 40 days, we're going to ask you to be thinking about one person. Who's your one? Who's your one broken, miracle person that needs Jesus? We're called to pray for all people. But let's start with one. Who's your your one that you can be praying about, praying for, building a relationship with over these next 40 days? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, we know that you have a desire to bring all men and women unto yourself. Lord, I ask that we would be a people who have the same heart for for our world and for those around us that you do. And that motivated by that, Lord, that having that same heart that you have, we would be a people of prayer for those around us, a people of evangelism, a people who want to see others come to know you. Lord, I pray that this morning we would reflect on the work that you have done in us to, to, to mend what is broken in us. And Lord, that as that work continues, may we give you thanks and gratitude for the work you're accomplishing in our hearts and lives. And may we desire to see it happen in the lives of others. Because you've done it in us, we know you can do it for someone else. God, we give you thanks give you thanks for what you have done in our hearts and lives. Help us to be a channel for it to reach others as well. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. If you would stand with me, Isaac's going to lead us in a verse of song, but there's an opportunity here for you to respond by coming to the altar and praying or lifting up that, that person's name, praying for that one in your life. Or maybe you're here and you recognize that that work of the Lord hasn't happened in your heart and life and you want to experience that today. You want to take that step in putting your faith in Christ. We would love to walk you through that this morning. As Isaac leads us in song, there's an opportunity for you to come. We'd be happy to pray with you.